thank you all for joining us at this rather early hour of eight o'clock um, to discuss uh, levelling up and what health can do to help level up the UK economy. I'm Gemma Tetlow, I'm Chief Economist at the Institute for Government. Um, I'm really delighted that you can all join us here today, both in the room and our live stream audience. Welcome to all of you. Levelling up is obviously one of the government's main priorities, with a primary focus on economic outcomes. But the UK has a less healthy population than many of our European neighbours, and there are big differences in health across the country. And improving health may be one of the most effective ways to improve economic performance, and the government has pledged to increase health, healthy life expectancy by five years by 2035. Um, so I'm delighted that you can all join us here today uh, with our expert panellists, uh, to discuss the importance of improving health for improving economic performance and to discuss what policies are most likely to improve healthy life expectancy, especially in left behind areas of the UK, how effective specific public health interventions could be compared to more radical reforms to education and the economy, and how these different levelling up policies should be coordinated within government. So our panellists are, first up, we have uh, on the, my far right, Joe Bibby, who is the Director of Health at the Health Foundation, who are kindly sponsoring today's event. We then have Jake Berry, MP, who's Chairman of the Northern Research Group and a former Minister of State for the Northern Powerhouse. On my left, we have Edlene John, who's Director for International Relations, Corporate Affairs and Co-Partner for Equality, Diversity and Inclusion at the Football Association. And finally, certainly last but not least, Caitlin Doherty, who's Westminster correspondent at the Yorkshire Post. Um, so we'll start with some opening remarks from all of our panellists, and then I'll pose some questions to them in my role as chair, and then we'll open up to plenty of time for questions from all of you. Uh, and we'll finish uh, promptly at 9.15, uh, so that you can all get on to the next set of events. Um, three, uh, or two brief housekeeping notes before we start. Um, firstly, we'll be live tweeting this event from at IFG events using the hashtag IFGCons21, so please do follow and tweet along, uh, and note that this event is obviously on the public record. Brilliant. So, And the coffee will be arriving shortly, <laughs> is the other housekeeping point. Yes, sorry, that was, um, <laughs> unexpectedly we are bereft of coffee, it will be arriving at the back of the room shortly, um, so we will forgive you if you note the coffee arriving and want to quietly go and get yourself a coffee um, to perk yourselves up uh, in the middle of the event. Please uh, do do soon. Apologies that that isn't here right now. Um, so Joe, let me start with you. Um, the Health Foundation's been doing a lot of work uh, thinking about levelling up health. What have you found in your research and what do you think are the real key things about how health can help with the levelling up agenda? Okay, so I think there's two reasons why we would want to see health, improving health, as being central to the levelling up agenda. I mean, one is broadly political and the other is economic. Um, the first thing to know is that in the 2019 election, because of the change in the seats across the different political parties, whereas kind of the traditional conservative seats had um, a healthy life expectancy, how long people can expect to live in good health of 65 years, the new sort of conservative seats had a healthy life expectancy of 60 years. So considerably lower and actually lower than the Labour seats that were held. So there's been a big change in terms of um, the political landscape and how that maps onto healthy life expectancy. And health and wealth are inextricably linked. We've seen that in the pandemic, but we see that um, sort of in normal times as well. We know that the biggest determinants of people's health, health are things like whether they can, they have a good job, a good income, can afford good housing. But we also know that poor health acts as a break on the economy and that people um, 
with a work-limiting condition, only 47% of those people are in, in, in employment compared to 81% of people without a work-limiting condition. So it does make a difference, health, on people's ability to contribute towards the economy. And that varies hugely across the country as well. So in, in Hartlepool, 21% of people have a work-limiting disability compared to 10% in Wokingham. So, you know, this matters, this needs to be levelled up as well if we want to level up the economy. But just to kind of say a little bit about the size of the challenge and put it in some global context. So, um, as I say, the sort of difference in um, life expectancy between women in England, um, between the richest and poorest is 7.7 .7 years. Um, the difference in healthy life expectancy is 20 years. Let's put that in the context of the rest of the world. Um, so... The UK's um, average life expectancy is 81 years, and that ranks 25th in the world. At the top is Japan, and the kind of good news is, if you're in the richest 10% of the society, you will expect to have a life expectancy as long as Japan. But if you live in the bottom 10%, your life expectancy is the same as the average person in Antigua and Barbuda, which has a vastly different um, GDP and societal structures and so on. So there's a question we have to ask, why is that that some people in this country are only living um, as long as people in the 57th ranked nation in the world? So what needs to happen if we want to level up health? What do we want to see in the white paper? First, improving health and improving health equity needs to be an explicit measure of success because if we don't have that in our sights, we won't see the economy improve. Second, most of the things that shape our health are within the responsibility of local government. So they need to be given um, the power and the funding to do that. We need to make sure that funding is going towards places that have the poorest health, which we, isn't what we've seen so far um, universally. Um, and we need to make sure that there is visible action in the short term to improve health. And I'll give you an example using mental health um, as I conclude. So, 43% um, of unemployed people have poor mental health, and this is a real barrier to them getting back into employment. So if we wanted to try and improve mental health, and level up and get people back into work, um, and you know, address that difference between the 43% with poor mental health who are in unemployed and the 27% who are in employment, three things we could do. First, address the barriers for people with poor mental health getting back into employment make sure that there's employment assistance schemes that are really tailor, tailored around the needs those people have. Second, we need to stop people at risk of poor mental health deteriorating. And that means better investment in services so that we can help people early and prevent their poor mental health getting worse. And then finally, we need to be embedding strategies that keep everybody in good mental well-being for as long as possible. And as I said at the start, good employment, good quality jobs in the right places will be one of the critical things for doing that. Thank you. Thank you very much, Joan. Lots of points for us to think about there. Jake, from your perspective, how do you see health outcomes fitting into the levelling up agenda? And what's, how, how important uh, do you think it's for the North in particular? Well, thank you very much. And thank you, Joe, uh, for those statistics, which I'm going to mercilessly pinch for the rest of conferences. This is my first event. So I work with uh, nearly 50 Conservative members of Parliament across the north of England, and we make up what many of you would think of as the Red Wall. And we've really got three asks and things we want to see at this conference. And I'm going to relate each of them to health because they are, it is a very uh, good issue. 
But the, the challenge is stark, isn't it? Joe talked about a 21-year healthy lifestyle differential between uh, the women in the poorest parts of our country and the richest parts of our country. So Bob Kerslake, Lord Kerslake, as he now is in his 2070 Future Commission, talked about a 19-year healthy lifestyle disparity for men between the richest parts of the South and the poorest parts of the, the, the North. That is clearly a completely unacceptable way for us to run a country or to live in the country that has those challenges. And that's why I and so many colleagues are so enthusiastic about the government's leveling up agenda. For the first time in living memory, a government has come out with a uh, an ambition to ensure that we reverse some of those health inequalities, including a five-year increase in uh, lifespan by 2035. I think I'm young enough just to benefit from that. And that's why, as Northern members of Parliament, I think we've got three big asks on this for this conference on the levelling up agenda. And the first is infrastructure. And now, many of you may think that that's things like Northern Powerhouse Rail and the A66 and uh, the, the Leeds metro system. Absolutely is that, but it's also digital infrastructure too. And of course, we entered the last election uh, with a promise that we would deliver uh, fast broadband, fibre broadband to every household in the UK. And if we talk about people's challenges in health and the work environment and mental health, it's very important that people do have that flexibility to work from home. And we've learned from the COVID pandemic that actually many jobs can be done effectively from home, but they can only be done when you have access to decent internet. And if Michael goes, is going to achieve his ambition of ensuring that through levelling up, no one has to leave their town to get a decent job, one of the best ways we could do it is to ensure that everyone in every town and every village and every rural community has good digital infrastructure. And that is as much linked to people's mental health, their ability to communicate and work from home. And I think that's hugely important. The second big ask we have, uh, I think, for levelling up, and it plays very much into the health agenda, is on devolution. Currently, 53%, I think from memory, I can see some journalists scribbling this down, so they'll probably tell me I'm wrong later. 53% of the north of England is probably higher now, has some form of devolution. I want to see the whole of the north of England with devolution, but devolution with a purpose. So I want all devolution, whether it be mayors or county deals or anything else, to be tasked with economic growth in their region. But also I think we should try and learn from the experience here in Greater Manchester, where the mayor has both control of health and social care. And when it's very early to draw any positive, you know, solid conclusions from that, the uh, Northern Powerhouse Partnership uh, is releasing a report, I think, today, which is showing that the early indicators from that, that linking up local authorities, healthcare and social care, is paying dividends. And of course, that can only be done on a local level. We all know it is better for a local authority to spend 50 quid putting up a handle by someone's front door than the NHS to spend thousands of pounds repairing that person's broken hip. And that isn't just about saving money. It's massively talks to that individual's quality of life. So I think that the government, as part of its levelling up, should have devolution at its heart. But health and social care particularly should play a really growing role in that. And the, the final thing that we would like to see as a 
group of Northern MPs is the government to come forward with a definition of what levelling up is. Because, of course, the government will not deliver levelling up at all in communities across the UK. It will be businesses and people who deliver levelling up. And, of course, whatever, you know, if you've worked in any large organisation from the NHS or local authorities, many of you may be councillors or even in business, you will understand that leadership is about formulating a plan, disseminating that plan down to the people who are going to implement it and then supporting them to implement it. So, of course, levelling up in healthcare should be part of that plan, but it needs to be communicated to the councils and the NHS. And at the moment, I think there's a, a, a bit of a gap there, and I hope that that will be filled. And the final point I would make, apart from the three things we would like to see clarity on in this conference, is devolution, levelling up, and digital infrastructure are all an opportunity for NHS reform. Because I said in Parliament recently, those of you who are suffering from insomnia may have not heard the speech, but I doubt any of you did. I said in Parliament recently that throwing money into a bottomless pit does not become a good idea because you put a blue NHS sign next to it. I absolutely want to live in a country where we have a well-funded national health service, what I rely on for my kids and my family. It's what everyone in this room relies on. But some form of reform going hand in hand with the new £12 billion national insurance funded NHS uh, recovery fund, I think needs to take place. And a big part of that needs to be engage local authorities, make the NHS digital, still the largest procurer of fax machines in the world, and also make sure that they know and people working in our NHS know how they can play their part in levelling up their own local community. Thank you very much, Jake. Edeline, perhaps I can pick up on Jake's third ask with you. Um, Joe laid out the huge challenges we face in terms of physical and mental health problems in this country. And what role do you think sport can play in helping to address some of these challenges and what, if anything, would you be looking for the government to do to make sure that the private sector can play its part in that respect? Well, firstly, thanks for inviting me to be part of this panel. Um, I'm really delighted to have the opportunity to talk about how important the role is that sport can play in, in helping the government to, to meet its levelling up agenda, specifically as it relates to health. Um, so speaking specifically about grassroots football, um, it is the most popular team sport in England. Over 14 million people play and participate in, in football every year. And of course, football for football's sake is great. And I'm biased and I would say that because I work for the FA. Um, but we at the FA also believe that football has a real unique power to change people's lives for the better. Um, we just need to look back to the Euros over the summer and see how after an unprecedented 18 months, football was able to really lift people's spirits, uh, unite communities and, and bring together a sense of hope, optimism and joy. But we believe that grassroots football has a really critical role to play in getting the nation back on its feet as we recover from COVID um, and look at how we can improve people's physical and mental health. It's clear that the improvement of public health should be a, a real kind of vital part of the levelling up agenda. But to do that, we need government's help. Um, we as the FA published a report earlier this year on the social and economic value of grassroots football in England. And it found that grassroots football contributes to over 10 billion um, in society every year. And this includes healthcare savings um, as it relates to the reduction of disease of over 1.6 billion, of which 525 million is directly related to savings for the NHS. 
This report also found that if we look at boys and girls who physically and actively participate in football, um, they have a 39% and 20% decrease odds of obesity, respectively, which is linked to a reduction of 213,000 cases of childhood obesity. Um, there are a number of other stats that I could throw at you as it relates to the impact that grassroots football has, but we have to be honest in looking at the facilities that we have across the country today. Um, and sadly, unfortunately, our grassroots football facilities are not up to scratch. Only one in three grassroots pitches is of adequate quality, and every year over 150,000 matches are cancelled due to poor pitch quality. Again, talking to the point around actually how do we compare on an, an international scale, we have only half as many 3B 3G pitches um, in comparison to Germany. So we're not where we should be when we think of the priority that this country gives to, to football um, and actually to sport more broadly. Over the last three years, the Football Foundation and the FA have worked together to look and work with local authorities, again, recognising the point that we have to implement and execute on a local level to support driving the change that we want to see that's going to have that impact as it relates to health. Um, and we've mapped out a plan across England, looking at some of the spaces where we don't have facilities that are up to scratch, looking at areas where there is significant socioeconomic deprivation and recognising that we need to improve facilities to provide people with access to participate in grassroots football facilities. Um, part of that is actually recognising that a lot of the centres are also multi-sport. So it's not just those who want to play football. Um, there's an opportunity for others to participate across sports. More, more generally. And when we've looked at and mapped out that plan, um, we've recognised that there is a, an economic shortfall at the moment. And so we were delighted when back in 2019, Boris and the Conservative Party committed to providing 550 million to support the ambition to make sure that we could get to a place where we could provide facilities across the country to really help contribute towards this agenda. Um, government have committed and have been clear in, in giving us some of that money, but as it relates to the spending review that will be announced at the end of October, we really look forward to having that commitment for the next three years to help us to achieve those ambitions and to make sure that we can focus our efforts, particularly in tier one and tier two communities where we know that there is a current shortfall and the facilities are not up to scratch. So as I mentioned earlier, you know, an FA standpoint is that we believe that sport has a significant contribution to play as it relates to achieving this agenda. But in order to do that successfully, we are going to need the help of government. Brilliant. Thank you very much. Caitlin, um, someone who's sort of seeing this on the ground, how do you think the public views levelling up? How do they see health factoring into this? And what do you think is the role of local government, some of the points that Jake yeah. spoke to? Um, well, thank you, like the rest of the panel, um, for letting me speak. And please excuse um, my slightly scratchy voice. One thing that is definitely not good for the nation's health is sending everybody in Westminster to party conferences for two weeks in a row. Um, I think the issue with levelling up is, I mean, my briefing note for this um, panel was um, three minutes on the public's attitude to levelling up and the role of local government. I wish that we could define levelling up in three minutes because, you know, it's been getting on for two and a half, three years now and we still aren't really sure what what levelling up is. Is it new trains and buses? Is it more schools? Is it better exam results? Is it better health outcomes? The answer is it's probably all of them, but right now we can't say that it's any of them. Um, uh, we, I seem to be writing, you know, three front page stories every week, um, which is hailing this new arrival or new project, which is going to be the key or the answer to levelling up the north of England. And um, it never quite seems to be the answer. And I think that sort of lack of clarity for now is probably meaning that the public's engagement with levelling up isn't as high as the government would probably want it to be. 
Um, it was a big promise two years ago, um, probably undoubtedly one of the big promises that gave the Conservatives their 80 seat majority. But the world is now a very different place to what it was two years ago. And um, obviously health has been has been a massive part of that. Um, I actually had um, a conversation with a blue wall, blue wall, red wall, whichever you may want to call them, MP, um, over uh, the social care debate a couple of weeks ago, which I think is where Jake's comments on the bottomless pit of money came from. And he had a very least similar idea. He said that, you know, if I'm going to be selling this promise to my constituents, what I need is something tangible to be able to point to them and say, you know, the extra 2p in tax or whatever that we're taking out of your back pocket, this is where it's going to be spent. And I think that is true for all of the levelling up related policies that um, MPs are trying to deal with at the moment. The problem is that there is nothing tangible to point to. And while there is nothing tangible on levelling up, what the public can see and what is tangible to the public is disadvantage, which is probably the opposite side of what the government would have wanted to um, wanted to achieve with this policy. If the last 18 months has done anything, it's shown that um, health outcomes are significantly worse in the north, in parts of the north of England, I should say, um, in comparison to parts of the south of England. And that has been replicated over and over with economic outcomes. Um, you know, fewer people have lost their jobs in the south of England. It's been replicated with educational outcomes. Um, in Yorkshire and the Humber and northeast, and the northeast, I believe, kids have missed more school um, than anywhere else in the country apart from maybe the northwest. Um, so all of these things add up together and I think people will start to engage with the levelling up agenda when they can see that those issues that make the headlines on the news that show them as separate from the rest of the country can start to be fixed. And they are some really, really big problems. It's not that people don't want to engage with levelling up, it's that they feel that there's nothing really on the board for them right now, I would suggest. Jake, perhaps I can come to you on that question. I mean, one of your asks was greater clarity on levelling up, but, and I'm certainly not a politician. Um, it does seem that perhaps part of the attraction of the politics of not defining levelling up is you can sell it as being everything. It's, it, it means whatever the, the hero wants it to mean, and that can be quite an, a, a powerful political tool. Is your concern just that there's only so far you can run with that? Why do you think the government should be much clearer about it? Well, I think it's one of the best things about levelling up in politically uh, is that it's sort of, you know, it is a catch-all term. And no government ever does anything because it's going to make people's lives worse. And the government says yeah, everything they do is to make people's lives better. That's why people get into politics. And so therefore, everything the government does is it's designed to make people's lives better could be labelled as levelling up. I think that's extremely dangerous because, of course, if it becomes a sort of, you know, this is the government panacea, the NHS football pitches, tennis courts, uh, you know, then it's very hard to demonstrate that you've actually achieved anything, which is why I think we need a much narrower definition, which is about reversing that north-south divide. And let's be clear that the income disparity between living in the north and the south of England in terms of GDP per capita, as publicised by a great North, North Yorkshire MP, Kevin Hollyrake, is the same now as between East and West Germany before the Berlin Wall came down. So, I mean, that's how big the challenge is. So, for me, levelling up is about reversing what I called in a newspaper article yesterday, this idea of southern privilege, that the fact that you were born in the south of England means that you will live longer, you will earn more money, and you will have better health outcomes. Now, like all 
many other forms of privilege. People in the South don't know that, and I'm sure that, that they have certain privilege. I'm sure their life feels very hard because they still have to pay for childcare and there's big mortgages and excessive transport costs. But in truth, you know, if you're going to reverse that thought of divide, we need to end the fact that you know you are privileged just because of your geography. Why should my kids in Lancashire go to a worse school than Michael Grove's kids in Surrey? I don't know. I, mean, I don't want to make it personal, but I mean, the, the truth is that, that that is a real issue. So we have to define it. But I go back to that point. I think the most important reason to define it is that we can all get on and do it. And the great, I was the Northern Powerhouse Minister. And the great thing the Northern Powerhouse had was an economic rationale behind it. So businesses looked at it and went, I can see how that's going to work for my businesses, in terms of skills, for my workforce, for you know, infrastructure. They could really, really buy into it. And I went to a brilliant lunch yesterday with business leaders from across the north. And the most striking thing I found at that lunch, the questions were, we really, we, we are part of the northern powerhouse already. The government's lost control of it. It belongs to the people of the north. How do we become part of levelling up? Levelling up is a slogan. Northern powerhouse is a strategy. And I think it's how we move levelling up from a slogan to a strategy. Thanks, Jake. Edlene, can I come to you on something that Jake was alluding to there? Obviously, perhaps inevitably, because we're sitting in Manchester, we're talking about this as being levelling up the north versus the south, but there's obviously a lot of disadvantage within areas as well, and huge disparities in income and healthy life expectancy within areas. From your perspective and what you think needs to be done, is this mainly about more investment in the north, or actually are there pockets of deprivation across the country that need to be addressed? Yeah, for, for me, levelling up is about addressing inequality across the board. It's not necessarily kind of just a ge geographical divide. It's about recognising the areas where actually there is deprivation and there are pockets across the country and recognising what we can do to help and support that. So I've talked predominantly about health outcomes um, in kind of the opening section, but actually we have to recognise if we implement and put in place grassroots football facilities, what you also have are the opportunity for more jobs. And actually that does play a contributory role as it relates to then the economy. What you do have is that we tackle some of the other broader societal issues. So actually loneliness is one of the challenges that government have talked about. Actually being able to come together and play team sports helps to support that. And that's not just sports in terms of kind of the way in which we think about conventional football. One of the pieces of work that our research found was that as it relates to older adults and those playing walking football, 88% of players surveyed reported improved mobility and coordination and a sense of happiness. So actually there are a number of benefits, but it is about, about looking cross-country and trying to address inequality across the board, not just from a geographical perspective, but indeed in areas where we know that facilities are not up to scratch and we know that that is having a negative impact on people being able to participate, play, engage with the sport of football, which for us, of course, is really important. Thank you. Joe, can I come to you on this point about the NHS being a bottomless pit? Um, I mean, there has been a tendency to put a lot of the money into acute, urgent care. What do you think would be the sort of strategies to try and to get more money towards the sort of preventative public health uh, investments that perhaps would then reduce the need for that later acute intervention? Yeah, um, I think there's a few things to unpick here. Um, I mean, the first thing is, the NHS is there when we're ill, and we all need it when we're ill. It isn't primarily the part of society that keeps us healthy. What keeps us healthy, as we said before, is good communities, good work, good housing, a good food system. That's what keeps us well in the first place. And when we're not well, we need the NHS. 
Um, you know, the Health Foundation's done analysis, it shows that the NHS doesn't need more funding. But I wouldn't say that's, say that's the same as it being a bottomless pit. The reason it needs more funding is because people in this country are getting iller. And just as an example of this, we could just look at the trends in obesity. So obesity is a risk factor for cancer, for heart disease, uh, poor mobility, ultimately poor mental health, and so on. And obesity since 1993 has increased from 15% um, in adults to 28%. So it's not surprising that demand on the NHS increases when we see increases in the things that are making us ill. Um, if we look at children, um, actually currently at year six, 20% of children are classed as obese. Now, or an overweight. And I think this is something that should really concern us because this means we're sort of baking in poor health into our future generations. So if we want to stop the sort of stem of funding needed for the NHS, we have to stand back and say, what should we be investing in that will keep people, keep communities healthy in the first place? And one of the things that's really difficult with doing that is that there isn't one single thing that works. So it is lots of things. It is actually, you know, more football pitches and good quality football pitches. You know, it is more libraries. It is better schools. It is better work opportunities. It is helping young people into apprenticeships. It's all of these things. And that's why we would also say that at place level, you know, local leaders at place level know what's needed most in their communities. So we need to have this um, ability for local government to take a strong lead, investing in the things that make us healthy. What we also need national government to do is to look at how they make investment decisions. If we're looking at things that just give a quick return in the next two or three years, we won't break that cycle of poor health. Um, so there is actually a lot of things on the government's plate, like the food strategy um, that's really got some positive recommendations. So there are things there that the government can enact, but we need to look beyond the NHS if we actually want to fix the NHS. That's Jake, well, I just want to come in on the bottomless bit point. I mean, it is a sign of success that the NHS is spending more money, because particularly with acute services, if you go in and you had a stroke or a heart attack or uh, have cancer, and they cure you, which we'd all say is a, a great thing, you therefore live longer and then you tend to go back two years later or five years later with something else. So the challenge I think with NHS funding is the better the NHS gets, and by God we all want it to be great, especially, especially if we're the patient, the better it gets at helping people, the more money it needs because that patient will then return where historically they would have tragically died of the heart attack or the stroke or the cancer and not had any further call on NHS resources. And that's the, the great challenge, I think, for government in terms of this funding is it, the more we put in, the more it will need, but actually that's better for health outcomes. Yeah. And I think when I say it needs reform, you've got to, I, I'm not suggesting for one moment that we need to sort of ration it and say, well, if you've had your first heart attack, that's fine, you can't come back next time. But it's when we, when we reform it, we need to work out how we can continue on that journey of improving primary care, particularly in hospitals, but at the same time try and get more out of the money that we spend. And I, and I just think that conversation hasn't taken place. And I just, I personally think that the British public, for us, the NHS, for everyone, the NHS has never been more in our hearts and in our minds. And I think now is the time that it's politically right for the Conservative Party and the Labour Party the political divide to have that discussion about how can we affect more effectively spend that resource to get those better health outcomes. And that, 
I covered about being, but bottom respect is a good thing because the better it does, the more it means. Well, although the three things you mentioned, cancer, heart disease, and strokes, you know, are preventable. Mm -hmm. um, they are avoidable True. ill health, and this is one of the problems, is that um, we aren't investing in the things to keep people well in the first place, so they need those services. But so maybe that grown-up conversation is when, you, when the NHS needs more money, maybe the sort of the, the thing we can do is say yes, but actually we also want to prioritise investing in healthier lifestyle, education, sports facilities. I don't, I don't know the well, answer. I just think, I think we need to. Yeah, we need to have that that conversation. Yeah, exactly. And I think recognising that preventative impact is what is so critical and so key in so many communities, because actually we have all recognised the, the kind of value of the NHS over the past 18 months. But if we could do more across society to get ahead of a lot of these illnesses that we're discussing and making sure that within communities, communities are empowered to have opportunities for people to protect their mental health, to be fit and healthy, to not get to stages of, of obesity and, and being overweight, then actually that would have a knock-on effect in so many areas. Um, and I know we focused a, long, a lot on physical health, but actually the impact of mental health is, is significant as well, right? Again, in the past 18 months, when many of us have been locked up in homes, working from bedrooms, homeschooling children, whatever it might be, we've seen that actually the toll on mental health has been significant. And so again, being in a position where we could do more to combat that in a preventative mechanism, would be significant, I think, for us as a country and a nation. And Caitlin, do you think this is a pitch that the public would be receptive to? Is there votes to be won here by making this case? Sorry, I need to stop tapping the microphone. Um, I think, going back to the main point that I was making a minute ago, <coughs> excuse me, um, everything with levelling up, ultimately levelling up will not, I don't think, be achieved until there are tangible things that the public can point to and say, this is what this government or this local authority has done with this amount of money, and it explicitly makes my life better in this way. Um, but I think there is a discrepancy there in as much as a lot of the things that people would probably class as levelling up, whether it be education, whether it be health, it, they're not necessarily directly controlled by central government. They're devolved further down to local governments, whether that be through an entirely devolved authority like you have here in Manchester, or whether it's just, you know, local health boards, local NHS trusts making those decisions um, and making sure where that money goes to. And I think it's also worth pointing out that health is probably one of the most direct points that an everyday person has as their engagement with politics. As much as as many hours as MPs spend in the House of Commons debating and, you know, ultimately it produces policy, the real engagement that they have with something that the government could change is probably, can I get a GP appointment? It's, can my child get a space at school? It's, can I then take my child from school to a GP appointment to fix the bump on the head or whatever that they, that they sustain today? And until, I think it's one of those issues that, um, <clears throat> sorry, excuse me, when those things are made better, people will probably feel that levelling up has been achieved in some way. But Caitlin, on that GP appointment point, doesn't that speak to the point of, delivering on that promise to get digital infrastructure out yeah. because um, I, I've had two GP appointments, one for myself where it was online, which was fine for me, and one for my son who had an ear infection, which is absolutely appropriate face-to-face. -face. But if more GP appointments are going to be online, it only works if you've got proper broadband. And yeah, I think absolutely. That sort of speaks to that levelling up agenda, prioritise infrastructure because everything else flows from that. I think all of these things link together so closely. It's, it's quite common for a lot of people to say, 
that at the heart of the levelling up agenda we have education and skills. But I would argue actually that infrastructure is the other thing there. I know it's a bit of a cliche to be talking about trains and buses and trams when it comes to levelling up, but um, I was in a panel yesterday where somebody made the really good point that there's no point in investing in all of these services if people then can't get to them to obtain them. And getting hold of them is either, like you said, having the broadband connection so that people can engage with these services virtually, or it's having the infrastructure in place to make sure that people can get to them quickly and affordably, which I think is is the other key point. And, you know, uh, Chris Whitty, um, in his annual report, which came out over the summer, um, every year the chief medical officer does this big medical report, and his focus this year was um, uh, health in coastal communities. He was calling for extra investment to be pumped into these coastal communities because health outcomes in places like Blackpool and Hull are um, a hell of a lot worse than even neighbouring towns that are slightly further inland and certainly worse than the big city areas. And I think that links back and loops back to this point in as much as um, people in coastal communities a lot of the time are separated. They're having to drive two hours to get to a cancer appointment. They're having to drive 45 minutes to get to a GP appointment that they get there. And it's then being cancelled because the GP surgery is dealing with such a large um, intake area that they've had too many people turn up for appointments today. And I think, again, going back to my main point, I'm sorry, I'll shut up about this soon. There needs to be something that people can point to and turn to and say, my life has been made better in this way. And only then, I think, will the levelling up agenda have achieved what it's set out to achieve. Jake, on this um, point about a lot of this being local and um, sort of local public services, um, looking at the politics of it so far, it seems that the government has been tended to focus on big pots of money, central pots of money into which local authorities bid, which doesn't really fit with your vision of devolving responsibility for this. How do you think the government can make the most of devolving responsibility, working with sub-national tiers of government while still retaining, getting the credit for having done these things and having leveled up? <laughs> it's very tricky, isn't it? But I would suggest that um, you know, if we look historically, we have been doing these big grand central plans for the last 50 years. And over that period, the North-South divide has grown. So surely leveling up is an opportunity to say, let's look at what hasn't worked, which is 50 years worth of central government plans of all you know, different governments saying we are going to fix this, we're going to tackle unemployment, we're going to tackle health inequality. We, we sort of know that doesn't work because we can just look at history and say, actually, the problem's got worse. So that's why I'm so focused on the devolution agenda because I think even though it's early days for many of these devolution deals, that you can look at them and say, actually, when you give power, money and influence to local leaders, my own personal view is Devolution doesn't really work without a mayor. I think we should have mayors across the whole of the United Kingdom. That won't be a popular view necessarily in the Conservative Party, but it's my, I can see people shaking their heads absolutely on cue. Um, and so my own personal view that devolution doesn't really work without a mayor, you need a mayor. Um, and I think that that is a new way of trying things. You know, saying to the mayor of Greater Manchester, Andy Burnham, you know, take health and social care and try and find a solution that links up you know, local authorities social care and, uh, you know, and hospitals and GPs to find a different solution. I, I, I personally think everything else we've tried hasn't really worked, so we should try that. And I just pick up on, um, I launched the Kickstart scheme in my own constituency, in, uh, actually in, in Blackburn, but covering Blackburn with Darwin Council. I'm the MP for Darwin and Rosendale. 
And what I was really struck by, it's a really, actually a really good team and young people massively positively engaging with it. Um, what I was really struck by was the speaker from Job Centre was saying, well, actually, our youth unemployment rates haven't really shifted for the last 20 years in this area. And during that time, I've been a member of parliament for 11 years. We've had Kickstart. We've had all sorts of different schemes and there were schemes under the Labour government. And the, the challenge I put out to them is, well, you know, if we've done this for the last 20 years and we know it hasn't really worked, what is different this time that's going to make it work? And I think we have to put that challenge out there with health and wealth and north-south inequality, say, okay, we've got, this is not, you know, Terra Nova. This is a ground we have been over for decades. What's going to be different this time? And that's what I want to hear from the government. I think to, to Jake's point as well, it's it's looking at, yes, OK, there may be a central pot of money. Um, you know, talking about grassroots football facilities, yes, we're looking for a central pot of money. But actually, in order to develop our plans, we've worked with local communities, we've worked with local authorities, we've worked with those on the ground who have a much better sense of actually what is needed, where is, is the, the gap that we need to plug, and how can we then provide that provision on a localised level so that we have the infrastructure um, that you mentioned before. So people are not travelling miles and miles and miles to engage in multi-sport or having to have a car or another mechanism that people can go in the local community, can engage in something that we think will have the impact that gets us to a place where actually we've achieved some of our levelling up objectives. Um, and that is what I think is critical. So yes, it may be the need for money from a central pot, but actually it's the engagement, the consultation, the constant communication with those on that local level to make sure that it achieves what we're saying we're going to achieve in each of those local areas. Coming back to the devolution point as well and linked to yours, I think the idea of that central pot of money, which then gets dished out to devolved authorities, is probably part of the reason why statistically mayors are far more popular than any other political figures. If you look in Manchester with Andy Burnham, Birmingham with Andy Street, um, <clears throat> my two patches in Yorkshire, we've got Dan Jarvis in the south and Tracy Braben in the west. Statistically, and Ben Houchin, ben Houchin in, the, in the North Tea side. He's not on my patch, but I will add that one to the list yeah, as well. He covers Yorkshire. It's the Yorkshire Post. He's a, bit, he's a bit too far north, slightly, <laughs> slightly. I can't if believe I know Yorkshire have, better than journalists from the Yorkshire Post. If you want to have that conversation with my editor, I'll, I'll take that one. <laughs> um, but essentially, yeah, they're, a lot of the time they're far more popular. Um, and I think because they are able to implement those policies at a local level, you know, they're able to implement these things that um, are the microcosms that, you know, actually impact people, you know, like we've said. Well, isn't part of the reason, though... Um, fact that we all love Father Christmas so it's quite easy to give stuff away it's much harder to raise the money to do it and I personally think that devolution will be fully mature where I would like to see it go in this country when mayors have both the ability to spend money but some of the responsibility to raise it in those first devolution deals uh, done by George Osborne there was in the Manchester devolution deal a requirement for the government to give the mayor of Manchester uh, tax raising powers on business rates like City Khan has as Mayor of London, a lot of that's paid for Crossrail. Um, that has never happened for various reasons, um, which I won't bore people with, but if anyone wants to ask me, I can tell you about it in great detail. And so you have mayors like Andy Burnham, Ben Houchin, Steve Rotherham, Andy Street, who are in charge of spending money but not in charge of raising it. And I think that's where we need to go to, particularly thinking about the attitude of Conservative members of Parliament about this, how does the government get the credit, is when mayors can also be held accountable for what they do. And people would say, well, I, I don't really like my last mayor because she raised 
taxes on my, my business rates and my council tax, and I don't think I've really got what I paid for, therefore I'm going to vote for someone else. And that actually was what a fully mature devolution system, I think, absolutely where the government should be going to in its white paper. Yeah, no, I think that's a very, very valid point. I mean, we saw last year we had some of the um, the tensions between the mayoral bodies and the central government when it came to money for furlough and other COVID measures. So I think, yeah, there is definitely some work there. To do. And the other thing just to pick up on the mayor is, what you know, how do we know these mayors work? Well, I, I think Ben Houchin, who covers part of Yorkshire, uh, but Ben Houchin, <laughs> who's brought the Treasury campus to Darlington. I wonder how many people working in the Treasury in Whitehall would go, oh, I've got a good idea. Let's set up a northern campus in Darlington. If you hadn't have had Ben Houch in there saying, well, it absolutely needs to come to the northeast, it needs to come to the sea. And that is why they say, I don't think devolution works without a mayor, because you have these national figures who go out and advocate for their areas and say, actually, if we are spreading beyond London, don't go to Manchester or Liverpool or Leeds or Sheffield or even Birmingham. Look at some of these non-metropolitan areas that I represent, and, and they're very good at banging the drum. And that's that's why I think we're seeing real change in places like the Tees Valley, um, when previously, I, I, as I say, I'd rather suspect that the uh, senior treasury officials probably couldn't really point it at a map. Um, so I, I just think that's why you need a map. Um, Joe, can I come to you on this? Well, not quite this, but I think you've been doing a bit of thinking about how government needs to coordinate both across departments and across different tiers of government to really deliver on levelling up health. What are the sort of main things you would want to see to make this most effective? Yeah, so, I mean, I was struck um, by the sort of power, money and influence, which clearly, you know, is at the heart of getting any change. I, I think um, what it will need, though, as you say, for that to happen at local level is for national government to be working differently. So what we don't see, I don't think enough of, is that joined up agenda across government, recognising that different government departments all have their role to play in improving health and levelling up health. So, you know, DCMS through sport, DEFA through the food system, DWP through the type of employment and work and benefits and so on. And so one of the things we want to see is a whole government approach to levelling up health. We want to see very explicit measure of what improvement will look like. We want to see um, supporting indicators because if we have a goal such as improving healthy life expectancy, as I've said already, that's not going to happen in the time frame of a single government, possibly not in the time frame of two governments. It's a long haul change. So then we need to be asking ourselves, what are the multiple things that sit under that that will help and contribute? Which are the national government departments that um, are responsible for those areas of policy and funding and how do we put more accountability into the role that they can play in keeping the country well um, and preventing the sort of, as we've seen the growing demand um, on the NHS and one of the challenges I think with national government is in a sense that everybody does want their pot of money you know whether it's the mayor or whether it's somebody in one of the government departments and the local government association have done a lot of analysis of the fragmenting funded that goes down to local level. So a lot of bidding for small pots of money, different schemes, short-term schemes. So we have to have a change in behaviour nationally in government departments to really consolidate the resources available and put in the accountability measures to ensure that those resources are being used in a way to improve health. 
Brilliant. Thank you. I'll go now to questions from all of you. Um, please put your hand up if you'd like to ask a question. If you're happy to do so, please do say who, who you are. Um, I'll take questions in batches of two or three just so we can get through them. Um, and please do wait until Penny gives you a microphone. We'll go first to the gentleman on the aisle and then the lady in the spotty dress on the aisle as well. Yes, my name's Alok Mitra. I'm um, now from Watford, but uh, I've lived most of my life in London and most of my family are in London and I travel there quite a lot. And just picking up about the bit of the mayor, we have a London mayor who is worse than useless. Um, he has managed to um, uh, block any kind of transport by putting in empty cycle lanes. Uh, knife crime's gone through the roof. Everything about uh, London has become a lot worse. And I've lived in London for 60 odd years and I can see the deterioration. So I don't actually think mayors work. One of the problems I have at the moment is that we seem to be over-governed. We've got government at every level, administration at every level. We should be looking for smaller government, not big governments, and have more self-responsibility. I'm afraid you'll never achieve your uh, levelling up agenda unless people take their own um, matters into their own hands. And I say this from a, a person who, uh, my parents came to this country over half a century ago, uh, being poor, but we're not poor now, and we didn't rely on government handouts. Thanks. Um, my name's Helen Pidd. I'm the Guardian's North of England editor. Um, Jake said that no government makes decisions to make people's lives worse, um, but this week it's going to make the poorest people poorer by removing the £20 um, universal credit uplift. Um, I don't think he voted against the withdrawal of that in September, correct me if I've got that wrong, but I'm just, I'm interested in his view and the panel, you know, given that the really proven link between poverty and poor health. Is he and the rest concerned that the removal of the £20 will further worsen health inequalities? Okay. I'll take one more question. Was another hand at the lady by the wall there, please? Thank you. Hopefully you can hear me through my mask. Um, Alex Archibald from Midlands Innovation Health. The name gives it away. We come from a region that, oh, well, I come from a region that is uh, often forgotten in the levelling up agenda discussion. We spend a lot of time, and I just wanted to challenge the narrative that came across within the panel discussion that we need to pick the worst areas. Surely it's about identifying the problems across the UK and regions working together to make those messages and convey those messages to government. It's, we, we struggle with challenging the North. Who's got the worst? Who's got to be the center of attention? Can we not all work together? Great. Um, right, Jake, should I start uh, with you? The I easy one's would. definitely for you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, um, the gentleman at the back from London, uh, I, I spent some time in London, I try to keep it to a minimum. But, uh, you know, if you don't like your mayor, work hard, vote him out. That is the power of politics. We had uh, a fairly exceptional mayor, I think, in our, our current <laughs> prime minister. I'm sure you gleefully said London is better. The fact that you're here, I'm just guessing you're a Conservative. Um, but I'm sure you happily said, you know, London is better because Boris is our mayor. And, you know, I think if we really think Sadiq's doing a bad job, and I agree with some of the things you've said, um, then we need to pick a really stellar candidate to be the next candidate for the mayor of London. It may be the previous one, I don't know. Um, I, and work hard and, and vote the mayor out because we have shown that we can win London and uh, um, and we should try and win it again. Uh, Helen, on your comments, thank you uh, for giving me the opportunity to give that answer. Look, I said, I think there's a big question for the government to answer. And I think the question is, how can you, I mean, 
in terms of impact on, on health, which was your specific question, I'll let the experts I'm on the panel with answer that very directly. But I think the big question, uh, which is uh, apparently on the front page of the Observer, someone told me yesterday, was how can the um, how can the government level up communities while at the same time taking money out of people's pockets, uh, be that universal credit? But I actually think the biggest impact will be the increase in national insurance, which I uh, don't support. And the reason I don't support it is because it's a tax on jobs. And many of the community I represent has issues with high unemployment and it's a disincentive for people to create more jobs and it's a tax only on people in work. And I don't see why people working should subsidize uh, you know, people who rely, for example, on investment income uh, from property or in fact, people who are retired on generous pensions who won't pay it. So my view actually, if I'd have been asked, which I certainly wasn't, um, my view was that a much better way of doing it would have been income tax because it would be spread across the income spectrum, would have picked up, and I appreciate there's relatively few of them, but there are pensioners in this country with very high incomes from pensions, both uh, final salary pensions, predominantly from the public sector, but there are others who, for example, got um, self-invested pension from running a business, etc. Um, so I, I just think that was wrong, actually, and I think... Uh, um, you know, I, th I think we should have done it differently. And people say, you know, well, business pays international insurance and, you know, it's right that business plays its part. Well, if that's what you truly believe, there are other ways of taxing businesses, as the Chancellor knows, because he has already announced not one but two increases in corporation tax. So I just think, uh, I think that ship has sailed, but I would have liked to have seen it done a di in a different way. And Alex, in relation to the Midlands and the Midlands engine, what a great question. Look, we do all need to work together, but I don't work for... Um, the Prime Minister, I don't even work actually for the Conservative Party. I'm proudly a Conservative Member of Parliament, but I work for the people in my constituency, as do colleagues across the North of England who are elected for any party. We all work for our constituents. My job is to fight for them. Northern colleagues have come together to fight for the North. I think that's the right thing to do. I think we are better serving our constituents by hunting as a pack and pushing the government uh, to deliver the levelling up agenda. I see no reason why the you know excellent Midlands members of Parliament uh, that we have shouldn't do something similar. I know uh, that Andy Street has suggested that, so let's see what happens. Um, you know, it's not north versus south. It's you know, it's a, it's about as well, levelling up. It's about improving everyone's lives. Um, so I hope and look forward to working with Midlands colleagues to uh, deliver the levelling up agenda for the whole of the United Kingdom because it's about you know, Great Britain. And Northern Ireland. So uh, yeah, look, watch this space. I, I think I think there might be news coming. Helen's getting getting a pen out. I'm not going to make it. I'm not going to tell anyone what I know, but I think there might be something coming up. Well, listen out for that, um, Joe. What do you know? Um, yeah, a couple of things there. I mean, I think on the third question. I mean, we have talked a lot about north south or kind of large geographical variations. But, you know, one of the realities is, is also within individual local authority areas, there are also significant variations in people's um, health and healthy life expectancy and so on. So we do need, you know, levelling up is one strategy at the moment, but it won't be the strategy that solves the sort of countrywide problem and difference in, in health inequality. So that's certainly something we do need to look um, more broadly than that. Um, I think to go to the universal credit point, I mean, yes, um, the cuts in universal credit are both going to be extremely detrimental to 
families and many working families um, who have relied on that um, and will, you know, obviously sort of feel the sort of sharp end of that cut. Um, the other thing, though, that the Health Foundation's highlighted <laughs> is that, you know, it's, this is also money that goes into local economies. I mean, people don't receive this money and then just sort of put it under the bed. You know, no, it is spent, it is, um, it is used, it's important. Um, and so when we've looked at also the sort of place-based effect of the cut, what you find is that in areas of lowest life expectancy, which tends to be the ones where um, more families are dependent on universal credit because there's poor quality work, poor quality wages, um, those places are going to see um, a bigger proportion of funding kind of essentially coming out of their local economies as a consequence of this. Now, I know people here will also say, well, can't just run an economy on kind of government handouts but if we haven't yet got the jobs you know we're in this bind and I think this goes back to this point about needing a more joined up government approach to how we think about policy change and we need to build in proper consideration of the consequences of policy changes on people's health and when we published our analysis a couple of weeks ago on the impact of universal credit on um, sort of place-based economies uh, one of the government ministers was asked if a health impact assessment had been done and it hadn't. So I think this is the problem is you can't have a kind of agenda to level up health if you're not looking at the consequences of all your decision making on health and taking a much fuller rounded long term uh, consideration of that. I think I'd echo a lot of what Joe's already said. I think we have to consider a lot of these challenges by taking a multifaceted approach. So talking to, to universal credit, absolutely that is one element of the challenge. But actually, what are we doing as it relates to educating people about making healthier lifestyle choices? What are we doing about providing access to facilities to enable them to participate in things to make them healthier? What are we doing about making sure that at local community level, people have skills, access, training schemes, apprenticeships to be able to get into positions of work and to be able to, to make an income themselves. So it's not it's not a one size fits all and one solution to the problem. There are a number of things that need to come together. And that's where, to Joe's point, actually various government departments working together, collaborating to make that difference in people's lives is really quite significant. Um, and similarly to the point that was made around recognising how various parts of the country can work together. I think we also have to often drill down and, and look at the data and look at the information about certain communities. Um, I come from the South, you can probably hear that from my accent, um, and come from a, a low socioeconomic background and area. But actually, if you look even within our community, you know, there are certain train stations where you turn left and actually life is very, very different versus where you turn right. Now, if you looked at, at the data holistically, you might say, well, this community or this local authority is doing well. The reality is on that localised level, there are stark differences in all of the things that we've talked about from a health perspective, life expectancy, opportunity to progress into certain careers or, or certain fields of work. And so I think we have to have that granular level of data, but actually we have to have an objective cross country to try and get everybody to a better place. Thank you. Caitlin. Um, I don't have much to add, but I think leading on from your second point, I think a lot of the levelling up agenda for the moment is focused really on cities. So, you know, it's how much how much investment are we going to bring to Leeds with Northern Powerhouse Rail? How much investment are we going to bring to Manchester with um, HS2 and things like that? But even within those cities, like you mentioned, there is an awful lot of disparity. And sometimes those disparities become even greater when you move out into the suburbs and the villages. There are parts of Yorkshire where there are villages that are really quite immensely wealthy and then they can be next door to villages where, you know, it's 
perhaps post-industrial area, there are high rates of unemployment, high rates of health inequalities and things like that. Um, and I think it's always worth making the point, similarly to what the lady said about, you know, the parts of the North and Midlands shouldn't be competing with one another. I think on a similar level, it's really important to recognise that the North and the Midlands isn't one conglomerate blob Correct. of people that, um, you know, and there's a definite way to fix this. You know, there are wealthier people in the North and Midlands, there are poorer people, there are people who are healthier, there are people who are unhealthier. And I think we need to be speaking to those disparities within the areas that we want to level up, as well as the disparities between the North and South, if we're going to get anywhere. Thank you. So we have time for a few more questions. Um, we'll take the gentleman here and then the lady behind and then go at the back on the aisle. Hi, thank you. So I'm Jonathan Blade from the Royal College of Psychiatrists. Um, I was very pleased to hear, I, mean, I think Joe was talking about the mental health impact and how that's so important to the Leveling Up agenda. Um, but one thing I think was talked about was about how you need to do things where people recognise and investment and people can see. And I, I was wondering if there's a slight concern there that, that sort of when we're sort of investing in infrastructure and health, there's quite a focus on sort of acute hospitals and machines that go ping and things that people can see and you, something an MP can stand in front of and say, look, this is our new acute hospital where sometimes things like the mental health sector where it's less visible and they're less, you know, big acute hospitals that they're, some of the investment is less likely to go there and if, if you're focusing on things can be seen. Great. Um, lady just behind you. Hi, um, thanks. My name's Emma Mee. I'm a GP trainee in Oxford. Um, I, I kind of want to touch on the kind of point around, um, I think one of the main problems in terms of levelling up is, is in inequities in healthcare access. Um, so, and I think the key thing here is, is personnel. So where I work, for example, you can get a uh, appointment, your GP face-to-face -face appointment, even same day, next day, no problem. Uh, where I grew up in Peterborough, you know, local surgery, mostly locum doctors. So that's, for me, I think, a key issue and something that voters really care about. And I just wondered what your views were on how do we um, change that kind of, you know, personnel. And I think in terms of personnel, you also have to think about talent as well, top talent. So medicine's a very academic profession. A lot of top talent gets attracted to where there are good universities, Oxford, Cambridge, London. And that is one of the causative factors, I think, um, as well as also um, as well as also, you know, certain left behind communities. Um, I think that is what voters will care about. Great. And the guys second row from the back. Thank you. Um, I'm a doctor, too. I, I work for Sea Rider. We're a national charity. Uh, we run hospices and neurological centers. We also um, help patients uh, or families who are bereaved. I just like I haven't heard charities get mentioned, and and I think we, we do save the, uh, the country money. Uh, when I see patients who are dying in my hospice, I know that that hospices only get a third of their funding from the NHS. Uh, fifth of hospices before the COVID pandemic were facing uh, financial ruin. I know we have to sell secondhand clothes to be able to look after to dying patients. Um, I think there there are there are things about what we can do to support charities to make sure that hospices don't get out of business. As far as our neurological centres, rehabilitation is, is a great money-saving thing. If you can rehabilitate someone and get them back at home rather than having to have long-term care, that's a great thing too. And also something about bereavement. We know that bereavement uh, is something we all go through, we're all going to go through, unfortunately, and it can have real impacts on, on, on mental health and your functioning, your ability to return to work. I think these are things we need to think about as a society. Thank you. Thank you. 
Adeline, can I come to you first? I don't know if you perhaps have a view on this, the role of charities and how they can play their part alongside government. Mm. Sure. So, yeah, the Football Foundation is is a charity that we are working in, in partnership with to, to deliver this plan, which actually ensures that across the local communities, there is something that can be seen. So to tie into your question, something that is visible, that people can say, this is what was developed in my local community. This was the multi-sports facility to enable me to play sport, football, to have a job, to do whatever is kind of provided in those facilities within the community. So it's, it's visible um, and meets that point of the agenda that was made. It's preventative. And, and again, we talked a lot about kind of health outcomes as it relates to what happens when people get ill, what happens when people have mental health problems. And I'm very, very much in the camp of that is critical. But if we could do more to prevent people needing to get to that place, that would, I think, help our country to be in a place where we are more leveled up. Um, and that's why for us, ensuring that we can have that the, the funding to provide these football facilities is really critical to, to what is a, an objective for us as an organisation. But I think that really contributes to helping society and many parts of the country that have been not looked after get to a better place. Joe, can I come to you next? Yeah. Any of those questions? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think, um, I mean, on the first one, you know, that is always the challenge, isn't it? The hospital is, you know, you can put the ribbon outside, you can put it and it's very visible and you can count them very easily. So that that is a difficulty. I think, um, but I was struck by, you know, what we were saying earlier about primary care, and actually that's where most people, you know, every day that's our first point, point of contact. And if our primary care is good and working well, we, we know that, and if it isn't, we also know that. Um, and so the Health Foundation has done some analysis on um, levelling up general practice because of exactly this point, but we know the areas where populations have the poorest health, they tend to have lower um, numbers of GPs per head of the population. Our analysis has also shown that they have less funding directed towards them. So, you know, this is something, you know, obviously when you know, you're saying on one hand you need more money overall, um, you know, starting to redistribute um, can be challenging, but there is more money going into the NHS and maybe one of the things we need to make sure is that funding is being directed in a way that is actually reaching primary care, reaching the populations and communities who need it most and not getting um, you know sort of siphoned off into more new hospitals um, and photo opportunities. Um, I think the, um, the the other thing is of course the integrated care systems that are being introduced which I think kind of you know they are going to have a much stronger incentive to think about these things and think about how services are run differently to better meet um, people's needs when they have it. But so the levers, I think there are some levers there, you know, but then it comes down to the, is the will to actually do something with that and can we use this funding differently and put it in more preventative space? Can we make sure more of it is going into areas of public health which have often a much higher return on investment than you know, some of the acute end of treatment? Um, the role of charities, I mean, you know, as you said, um, they're absolutely vital and we kind of, again, we bump up into them in all parts of our life and kind of really Take, can take for granted what they do and what they're there and they have had a really difficult time over the last 18 months but I think you know this comes back to one we need to make sure there is more in investment in our social fabric and our social infrastructure not just our kind of you know hard infrastructure they're both needed if we want the sort of society that supports people to stay well and I think also another thing is how we can ensure that it's easy to commission from um, some from small charity services um, you know, we often have a kind of, you know, the same sort of commissioning arrangements in place, 
the very small charities that provide vital support to people with acute, you know, with kind of complex needs um, that we might have, you know, for some big service that is kind of running our mobile scanner units or whatever. And we just need to be more proportionate and make it easier for charities to be able to play the role they have. Um, I just wanted to come to um, the lady who asked about um, GPs and you know needing more in areas that aren't in London and the southeast. Um, there have been reports swirled several times over that GPs are being offered quite large sums of cash, maybe as much as um, half a year's salary or three quarters of a year's salary, to move to more rural communities to help serve those communities that um, need extra support from the GPs. But <laughs> circling back to what this whole debate is about, a lot of people are turning it down because they don't feel like the other aspects of their life would be as well served in these communities. You know, they don't necessarily have the schools that they would want to send their kids to or the infrastructure to live the life that they would want to live. And it's almost like, I feel like if and when levelling up comes in the way that the government really wants it to, it could be really, really transformative. But we can't be dealing with it one issue at, the at a time because everything is so interlinked. Um, and to the gentleman that asked about um, the, you know, photo opportunities and big machines, big projects. Um, again, sorry to piggyback off the words of other people, um, but I was at an event yesterday, funnily enough, on levelling up, um, where an MP said that we need both a short-term cash injection and more long-term investment in education and skills and fixing these more long-term issues. And I feel like that sort of speaks to a point that you were making. You know, maybe the short-term cash injection is the MRI machine at the hospital. But I think all MPs would also say, yes, we'd love a new we'd love a new MRI machine, but also I'd really like this extra long-term investment so that extra courses can be offered at my local college or however that may work. And it may just be that um, we're not quite yet seeing the long-term outcome of this money, um, but then how much money is there to go around and where is it coming from? Okay. Well, I, I'm just going to say very briefly, uh, I mean, I basically agree with everything the panel's said, so I'm just going to add one further thing for food for thought, because I think this is our last question. Um, if you went and spoke to your local chief constable, as members of parliament do all the time, and you asked them what is one of the biggest challenges they, they have, they would say mental health crisis in the community. And so where people say, well, you know, I'd love to see more police officers on the street, or I'd love to see more crimes investigated or whatever it is, they need to understand that actually the way to get there is to give parity of esteem to mental health care and ensure that we give support in the community to support them. So, I mean, well done you, you do a hugely important job and, and also a trainee GP in the room and another doctor is real. This is the only medical set of questions, but I do think as a society, um, if we put more resources and more energy and passion into supporting the mental health of our population and lots of other things that people wouldn't really think about but their policing will become better and I think that's why it needs to be a real priority for the government. I would absolutely agree with you. I was talking to some uh, finance chiefs of police forces the other day and that was exactly one of the major points they were raising was the cost of mental health crises on the police forces so um, very good point to end on. Um, and we are going to end there. Um, thank you all very much for coming. Uh, thank you again to the Health Foundation for sponsoring this event. Um, please do check out the Health Foundations and our own work on levelling up if you're interested in further uh, analysis on this area. 
thank you all for coming along. Uh, we do have various other IFG events going on at the conference, so please do come and join us. Our next one is happening at one o'clock in just next door on how can infrastructure investment contribute to, guess what, levelling up. Uh, <laughs> so thank you all very much. Thank you.